When Shaka Shakur wants to read a book, he has to jump through quite a few hoops. He's in prison, so he either has to get a guard to take him to the library or get someone on the outside to send him what he wants. He wants to read about black history and liberation, but it can be hard to get those topics past the mailroom. They're often flagged as security threats. Shaka knows what he's missing. He's dealing with known unknowns. But imbalances in power lead to unknown unknowns, too. When Kayla Austin started learning the history of the Norwood neighborhood of Indianapolis, she found troves of black history that was only known to the families themselves. The people in power hadn't seen this place as worth remembering, so the history had stayed in old women's garages and descendants' attics. This week on Interstates, Katie Ratty brings us two stories of knowledge and power. Then, Kate Young talks to a comic book artist. That's coming up after this. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. This week, we have two stories from producer Katie Ratty. The first is about Shaka, who's facing a lot of obstacles to getting reading material, especially, it seems, if that reading material has to do with Black history and liberation. Here's Katie. Every September, the public library down the street from my house had a display with caution tape all over it. It was Banned Books Week. The table was full of stories that some parents, schools, and religious organizations have fought to ban from school and public libraries. Things like Harry Potter, The Handmaid's Tale, The Most Dangerous Game. I found it so bizarre that some adults were so obsessed with what my peers and I might read. From then on, nothing made me want to read a book more than finding it on a banned books list. But here's the thing. I was still able to get my hands on banned books pretty easily. If you're incarcerated, it's a different story. Prison book bans are absolute. If the book you want isn't in the prison library, you have to buy it, or someone on the outside has to send it to you. And if it gets to the mailroom with a stray highlight or ripped cover, or if somebody in the mailroom thinks reading about Malcolm X might incite violence, that book you or your family or friends paid for will be rejected or destroyed. Restricted book access is hardly the most intense violation of human rights that happens inside American prisons and jails. But it's a huge First Amendment violation, and it cuts off a major source of education and entertainment for prisoners. Imagining myself subject to that situation made me claustrophobic, for lack of a better word. It made me wonder how I would spend my time if I were caged by the state, with even the smallest luxuries like choosing which books to read restricted to almost nothing. And it made me want to talk to Shaka Shakur, because books play an important role in his life inside prison, where he's been for decades. Uh, I identify as a political prisoner, prison activist, jailhouse lawyer, so forth. I've been involved in the movement for over 27 years. I got 20 years in on this sentence. In 2018, IDOC transferred him to a Virginia prison. The law books he used to help himself and other prisoners work on their appeals should have been in his cell waiting for him. But they weren't. All my law books... Like encyclopedias, I got African Britannica encyclopedia that I've had for the last 20 years with all these books that was, was withheld. And now they disappeared, don't nobody know where they at. Shaka spent almost 20 years of his 63 year sentence in Indiana, where he's from. He had ongoing litigation in Indiana. Being transferred away without his home state's law books made it difficult to meet legal deadlines and continue working on his case. Shaka City's had trouble getting and keeping books, regardless of where he's been. The Virginia prison recently forced him to send home over 90 of his personal books, which he shared with other prisoners. Most of them were legal and medical texts. He had exceeded his 13-book limit, so the rest were considered contraband. He said he's been impressed with the Virginia prison libraries compared to Indiana's, though. Back in Indiana... They were denying us history books on Malcolm X and George Jackson, but you go to the library and you got a, a ton of material in the library on Nazism. Shaka is by no means the only person to experience this kind of thing. Prisons ban more books than any other institution in the U.S., according to PEN America. And that's especially true for books about black history and civil rights. They're disproportionately blocked to security threats. Like in other states, mailroom staff in Indiana prisons use their discretion to decide what to reject. They're encouraged to err on the side of caution, and they sometimes take the rules to their extremes and deny books that pose no meaningful threat. 
In 2018, five IDOC facilities began to only allow books from two vendors, Amazon and Edward Hamilton, and they rejected all used books. In mailroom training materials, IDOC said those facilities made the decision without approval from the central office. The Human Rights Defense Center is a group that advocates for prisoners' rights, and they publish magazines and legal self-help materials. And when that rule went into effect, none of their materials were getting in. Dan Marshall is general counsel there, and he said they didn't even know their mail was being rejected until their subscribers on the inside told them. So there clearly are certain things that they can ban. They can't, uh, there's no problem with them preventing prisoners from getting magazines talking about, you know, how to build bombs, for example. But, but they, in many places, expand that way beyond what is actually a legitimate interest of theirs. So the center sued in November 2020. By the way, the Supreme Court ruled way before all of this happened that prisons have to let senders know when their mail is rejected and why. Last January, a court told IDOC it had to stop rejecting books based on the supplier. It also said IDOC had to notify whoever sent the rejected materials in writing. And it had to say exactly what part of the material threatened a specific, legitimate, penological interest. You might be wondering why the center's publications were being rejected in the first place. Well, when IDOC was asked to cite what exactly threatened the prison, the problem wasn't the text of the magazines at all. The problem turned out to be advertisements for pen pal services, which IDOC argued posed a security threat. How is that a security threat, you ask? The courts seem to want to know the same thing, because the settlement they reached last November specifically prohibits IDOC from rejecting material solely on the basis that they contain pen pal services. They agreed to ultimately settle the case and let our publications in, which if they truly thought there was a security problem, they wouldn't have done that. The settlement reinforced that prisons couldn't reject books based on their supplier. IDOC has to provide a reason for all rejections going forward. And they also had to create a training program to make sure all of that actually happened. I took a look at the mailroom training they've implemented. It went over the facts of the case, and it explained the kinds of things that should or shouldn't be rejected. But it said nothing about maintaining logs of confiscated material, which the settlement requires. It also encouraged mailroom staff to think broadly about ways in which a material could become threatening to the prison. Also, remember how the court said IDOC has to cite specific threats to its interests when it rejects material? A couple months after that court order, IDOC rejected a book from a nonprofit called Books to Prisoners. The rejection letter said nothing about why the book was rejected. Oftentimes we'll get something back saying rejected for racial content or will challenge the good order of the prison. Sometimes there's, there's no additional explanation. Sometimes they'll point to a specific page uh, which might refer to something, anything to do with race. Andy Chan is a longtime volunteer and current president of Books to Prisoners. Often, rejections from prison systems all over the country come back with no explanation at all even though, again, Supreme Court precedent requires them to. But when they are given, reasons vary. Some prisons don't accept used books, for example, or books with stains or markings. Books to Prisoners has also dealt with content-based bans, which are bans for things like violence or nudity. Very basic nudity sometimes. Uh, National Group Geographic is one that we have to trawl through every damn page to make sure there isn't an errant nipple or genitalia of any sort because that will get rejected from most prisons. Now, it can be so, so as ridiculous as uh, a case which rejected a book on Renaissance art because there was a black and white reproduction of a, I think it was 15th century painting of the Madonna with baby Jesus and baby Jesus, which was about you know half an inch long, three quarters of an inch long, uh, had a, a little baby Jesus penis, hmm. which was probably like a millimeter long, but that got the book rejected. IDOC said its staff doesn't keep a record of the books it bans. That means it's impossible to say to what extent they reject books by and about black people as security threats. But anecdotally, that pattern persists in Indiana. So the IDOC particularly does not support political literature that is broadly pro-black. Adam Scouten is an organizer for IDOC Watch, a prison abolitionist group that works with political prisoners. He said one of the main ways IDOC rejects black political literature without violating the law is through security threat groups. Law enforcement defines a security threat group as any group of prisoners who violate or might violate 
the prison's rules. You'll hear them called STGs, too. One publication Adam mentioned that gets rejected on these grounds quite a bit is the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. It publishes stories about San Francisco's Black community and writings by prisoners all over the U.S. If they find a book or publication that even so much as refers to an STG, they will ban that book. We know that white supremacist-oriented texts have been allowed to to come in. So the focus is clearly on banning Afrocentric texts. They don't want our publication because it's it's educational. It's inspiring. It brings hope. Of course they don't want that. Nube Brown is the editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. For Nube, these bans on books and newspapers are an extension of a much longer history. So I say mass incarceration is modern-day slavery. Slaves are stripped of all of their rights. If you think about chattel slavery, it was against the law you could be whipped, tortured, killed for reading or writing. You were not to have any agency over your life. You were the property of the master. Well, that is exactly what's taking place inside of our prisons. So if the prisoners are educated about who they are, what is happening, and then may be able to get together and resist what's taking place, that, of course, is a threat to the system. I reached out to IDOC, and a spokesperson denied that they banned books based on race. For prisoners, just like for people on the outside, reading is a source of education, empowerment, and entertainment. On the inside, it's also a connection to the outside world. Prison libraries are limited, and you can only go if a guard agrees to take you. A company called Global Tell Link powers tablets that prisoners can use to buy ebooks, music, and movies, but they're expensive, and selection is limited. By the way, Global Tell Link is the same company that runs the phone lines Shaka and I use to talk to each other. Incarceration is a really big business. GTL makes hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every year off of prisons and jails. Shaka said the move toward tablets and ebooks is a way to both restrict and monitor what prisoners are reading. When Shaka and I talked, he was reading Wretched of the Earth by Frantz Fanon, and he had just finished a book about Gloria Richardson and the struggle to desegregate Wilmington, Delaware. A lot of the books he reads are about decolonization, anti-sexism, and the movement to abolish prisons things that might help him to educate and to politicize other prisoners. Like Shaka said earlier, he's had an easier time getting books in Virginia, and the prison library is better than Indiana's. But it's still frustrating when he can't get the books he wants. Adam is a friend of Shaka's, and his work as an IDOC watch organizer brings him into contact with other prisoners, too. So he's seen what it does to people when they're cut off not just from other people, but also from literature. You're sitting in a cell with nothing to do. It it gives the lie to the official narrative that a prison exists for reform and rehabilitation. The best way for people, and the only way available for the prisoners, to be able to make any positive use of their time is really through literature. On top of the need to occupy your mind while incarcerated, Not having books poses practical problems. Shaka was able to get new legal self-help materials, but in some prisons and jails, legal books are rejected out of hand as dangerous. Why? Because they usually have hard covers. So there's there's a million and one tricks they use to to keep people separated from information that's essential, not just for their own self-improvement and well-being, but for their ability to be able to get out of prison eventually. In the prison yard, Shaka Shakur studies. When he first went behind bars at 16, he was just a kid. Older prisoners mentored him. They taught him about Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer, the prison movement in the American South. As he learned, he would go out into the yard, sharing what he learned with others. We was learning stuff in prison that we weren't learning in school. And so it may be five, ten, sometimes as many as 15 or 20 of us out studying instead of playing basketball or what have you. And we developed, like, tests and book reports on certain books and, like, ran our own underground libraries. 
He said rebuilding the current study group's infrastructure after he had to send home so many books will be frustrating and expensive. But he'll reorder more, and he'll share them with others. I'm going to tell you something. In prison, knowledge is power, and it's also a threat to the establishment. It's not just in prison that knowledge is power. Why else would people be so up in arms thinking critical race theory is being taught in schools or panicked about their kids learning about queer people? If you ask Shaka, the panic in school board meetings is the same panic that restricts his book access. So it's the same thing with the prisons. You know, as they've given us these tablets, et cetera, we can order e-books, et cetera, you limit it more and more. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an agenda here. It's a strategy here. That strategy is being pushed by the state in terms of more control, more surveillance, and so forth and so on, and trying to undermine any ability for us to organize and fight for our rights, whether it's behind these walls on this front or behind the walls on that front out there where you are. You have one minute remaining. Knowledge is threatening to people in power because it's a precursor to action, whether we're on the inside like Shaka or not. And nice to meet you, Kate. I appreciate you. Yeah, nice to meet you, Shaka. Thank you so much. All right, so have a good day. Bye. Thank you for using GTL. From school board meeting rooms to prison mail rooms, people with power evaluate what people subject to that power should know. And they're not going to allow knowledge to be shared if it might help prisoners go on strike or lead school children to organize a walkout in support of black lives. At least, not without a fight. That was producer Katie Ratty. A print version of that story originally ran in the Indiana Daily Student. It's time for a break. When we come back, Katie brings us a story about what can happen to a neighborhood when a city decides its history doesn't matter. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Part two of our show today is about a neighborhood in Indianapolis whose history and stories and archives have been ignored by city officials for generations. That's affected more than just what stories we have. It affects what gets built and what doesn't. Katie Ratty brings us the story. Norwood is a black neighborhood on the southeast side of Indianapolis. It was founded as a free town by emancipated slaves in the Reconstruction era, and it became a tight-knit, affluent black community in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But for most of Indiana history, you'd be hard-pressed to find any of that if you turned to the state's museums, libraries, and archives. You would find materials portraying Norwood as a decaying neighborhood if you found anything. A group called Southeast Neighborhood Development got a grant to create the Memory Keepers Project, which began collecting stories from elders in Norwood and nearby neighborhoods. They commissioned Kayla Austin for the project. And it is an oral history and portrait project that I did in collaboration with the Southeast Neighborhood Development Organization. And I get to work in the community that raised me. I interview like 10 to 15 grassroots community leaders in the Southeast Quadrant of Indianapolis, do their oral histories, paint their portraits, and then connect them with the resources they need for their communities to stay stable in the face of the gentrification that's coming. Kayla is a painter and an art historian. When she was attending IU, she got a museum studies certificate and focused on how people use space to tell stories, particularly stories about African Americans. She worked in the museum field, but she decided to leave because of the challenges of doing pro-Black work there. Very quickly, Kayla began to uncover immaculate Black history collections in Norwood. It turns out that Norwood is one of the oldest stable free towns in the U.S., All the founders of these communities were the U.S. Colored Troops. The only regiment of the U.S. Colored Troops was in Indiana is in Fountain Square, which is less than a mile away. All of the founders of this community were U.S. Colored Troops, and at least 10 to 15 of their descendants still live in the original lots their grandparents built at the end of the Civil War. All of these families have full standing archives that date all the way back to emancipation. Some of them have their manumission papers. They have their lot sales documentation. They have family photo albums that date back to the Civil War. I mean, they're really immaculate collections that we're talking about. Kayla said almost none of what she has found appeared in state archives or in Indiana students' textbooks. 
The first person Kayla talked to was a woman named Flanora Frazier, who Kayla calls Miss Flynn. Miss Flynn is 92, and she keeps one of Indiana's best Black history archives in her garage. Miss Flynn made it her responsibility to keep the neighborhood's history safe. Her grandfather, Sidney Pennock, founded three AME churches in the late 1800s. All of them are still active today. When a member of the congregation has a major life event, Miss Flynn records it. When someone dies, Miss Flynn's there to preserve any historical documents they had, from Civil War medals to family photos. She tried to get historical designations for her grandfather's church. She was told it wasn't significant enough to be considered. So she was skeptical of Kayla at first. The president of the Norwood Neighborhood Association convinced her to give Kayla a chance. So I was I was connected to Miss Flanora Frazier, and she, when I first called her, said, Oh, another historian. And she in no way wanted to speak to me at all. But the president of the Neighborhood Association had convinced her to do it, so she was like, fine, I'll talk to you. But she was not happy about it. But Miss Flanora, we found out after, has historically been denied over and over again by the historical organizations in Indiana. So she tries to get a historic marker for her grandfather's church when it turned 110 years old, and they said that her grandfather's property wasn't significant enough. I mean, we've just got kind of repeating records of them kind of just doing a disservice historically. And so she was not excited to talk to me at all when I called her on the phone. You know, and she was really just not happy about me coming in there and doing this. But then as I got to know her more and the history of the community more, it's like, oh, that makes sense. You're kind of expecting me to betray you. So I would pick her up at her house And I don't think she'd ever met a Black historian before because her total demeanor changed. In the beginning, Miss Flynn seemed surprised that the things she had kept had historical value, like a picture she had of soldiers from Norwood getting ready to go fight in World War II. Here's her and Kayla talking about it in the Memory Keepers interview Kayla did with her. This was uh, one of the guys' things they had. But they were the older guys, older than I, you know. Mm-hmm. So when they were going to World War II? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that's like a great piece of history to keep recorded, right? That's something mm-hmm. you see in a history museum. Oh, really? Yeah, like that's a, that's something that if it's not kept, the memory is lost. I wrote the date at the bottom. Yeah. Eventually, Kayla helped Miss Flynn find out more about her grandfather's early life and history. She found her grandpa on a slave census, and then she found his grave, which had been right in the neighborhood all along. He runs away at emancipation and joins uh, the Union Army in Louisville at 13 years old. Fights the Civil War, goes and saves his mother from enslavement because she was still there and then comes up here to Indiana with her and starts this community. That's still standing. In 1870, when he and the other original settlers were establishing Norwood, the village consisted of about 20 black households. Norwood's first school was established in 1872, less than a year after Indiana legalized public education for black students. Pulling it off that fast showed that it was an incredibly organized, tight-knit community. And pretty soon, black politicians were making campaign stops there. Just three decades later, at the turn of the century, Norwood had a thousand black residents living in an unincorporated village. They made decisions at a town council that operated by consensus. This is our Black Wall Street. This is our Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, this is an affluent, free black community that built itself up from scratch. Ada Harris was the longtime principal of Norwood's school. She was responsible for its early growth and success. She bought a plot of land and an old dairy barn to use as a community gathering space in 1908. And she owned other land along Madeira Street. When the city of Indianapolis annexed Norwood in 1912, city officials decided that Harris wasn't educated enough to teach in Norwood any longer. She went to get her degree at Butler University. But even with that education, she was never allowed to teach in Norwood again.
In her will, she left her assets to the city parks department to build Norwood a community center. So Ada Harris runs the community land trust for the the neighborhood. She's the most educated member of Norwood, right? She's graduated high school. She's the principal. She talks to the lawyers. She deals with the city. Like, she does all of this stuff because she knows how to do it. And essentially, they like penny party, right? So a penny party is just like a rent party. You know, everybody, somebody performs, everybody puts 25 cents in the bucket. Once they get to $50, they buy another lot. And everybody owns everything together. But Ada Harris specifically owns these properties on Madeira Street. And it's where the the Black Library is, where the kindergarten classes, the community center and the park are. And the deal is that Ada Harris is leaving these four lots, might've been three lots, three or four lots, all of her liquid assets and all of her material possessions to the Parks Commission of Indianapolis, the Indianapolis Parks Department, under the agreement that they are gonna build the Ada B. Harris Center for the Betterment of Negro Children in Norwood. Ada Harris dies two years later. They send their lawyer out after Ada Harris dies. The Parks Commission does, sends them out to Norwood. The lawyer comes back and says, and I quote, it is neither needed nor necessary for there to be a center for the benefit of Negro children in Norwood. Auction everything off. They sell everything. They sell their library, their park, their community center, and their kindergarten classes. And the next year they bulldoze them all down. There's nothing left of the community that they built for the last 40 years. And the city, 110 years later, is repeating the same exact way that they treated us. In the 1920s and beyond, Norwood was surrounded by notoriously racist neighborhoods. A Klan distribution map from around that time showed about 250,000 Klansmen in Indianapolis when Miss Flynn was a kid. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so I am asking Miss Flanora, and I'm like, Miss Flanora, what was that like? You're a little kid, the Klan is like posted along the borders of your neighborhood. This is the only world you've ever known. Like, what were you feeling? Because I would be terrified, right? I would be genuinely like really scared. And she said, Kayla, I never even knew they were out there. I've never been anything but safe in Norwood. That came up again and again in talking to Kayla and in listening to the Memory Keepers interviews. That despite all the racist barriers stacked against Norwood, everyone took care of each other and the community continued to survive. In the Memory Keepers recording, Miss Flynn remembers her elementary school fondly including how her teachers subverted the state's curriculum to teach her and her classmates black authors and black history. I remember, oh, I wrote a, you know, I didn't have kids writing the compositions. Well, I won one time at school and I got to meet Langston Hughes. It must have been in the 40s sometimes. Had you read Langston Hughes? Uh, Had you read his work at that point? Yeah. Or was it just like a... Uh, we studied, well, in a black school, you know, we studied about black people. Teachers managed to squeeze it in somehow. It's some smart teachers. But then, when the school started busing and she attended an integrated school outside Norwood, she found that school became less interesting and less fair. On aptitude tests, black kids like her didn't have the same base of common knowledge that white kids did. First time I've ever been in integrated school. Uh, aptitude, I guess they call it. I said, uh, it's so unfair because black kids didn't know a lot of the stuff that was on the test. What did we know about concrete? We had the sidewalk was the ashes from the stove. We didn't know about sidewalks. How could you answer a question like this, for example? because we weren't, didn't have access to stuff. After annexation, the city of Indianapolis was slow to provide services. Norwood didn't get paved roads until the 1970s, which is what Miss Flynn means when she says she didn't know about sidewalks. 
Norwood also didn't get electricity until the 1930s or plumbing until the 1950s, well after the white parts of the city. What Ms. Flynn is saying here is that the lack of basic municipal services wasn't just a material problem. When she started attending school with white kids, it also meant a difference in what was considered common and valuable knowledge. And since the common knowledge among white people created the basis for schooling and testing, black kids weren't tested fairly, which contributed to the racist idea that black people weren't smart. Automatically, some people thought we were dumb. We weren't dumb. We just didn't know. We had no resources. Because black people are smart. Very smart. Shit about all that list of inventions we've done. <laughs> but we always smart enough to find a way to not work hard. We didn't mind working. But what is, was ridiculous to work hard when there was an easier way. That's been the story of Norwood since the city annexed it. The white establishment imposed its will on Norwood and made things worse for the people there then blame the poverty and disrepair on the people it was battering down. The people of Norwood have survived all this time, but the pattern persists. The line between past and present is so thin. The preservation and sharing of history is crucial, but so is the immediate political reality of gentrification and structural racism. That's why the Memory Keepers Project connects people to resources in addition to recording their stories. How do we filter resources into a community in a way that uplifts what's already there instead of kind of continuing this like manifest destiny mentality of wipe everything out and start over, right? Because that's what we're, that's what's happening all over Indianapolis is that we're just wiping out black communities and building new ones on top of them. And so how do we create a structure that can work to preserve? As it builds, how do we integrate historic preservation into urban renewal so that we're not losing these histories that these communities have taken 200 years to build? Because there's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like if they aren't safe and don't have food access, then they can't care about history. Bringing up gentrification in the middle of talking about a local history project might seem random. But the way we remember history is more than an academic exercise. It tells us what to value about ourselves and about our communities. Samson Lovingston, a friend of Kayla's, gives historical walking tours called Walk and Talks. He's passionate about showing people the multicultural history of Indiana neighborhoods, especially if they think their neighborhood is, and always has been, white. He wants them to have a good time while he does it. I just wanted to look for myself where I was. I tell people to try to be where their feet are. So when you're doing that, you're going to obviously like history, because you're going to be like, wait, okay, who was here before me? I met him at the corner of McCarty Street and Virginia Avenue in Fountain Square, where there's a historical marker for the 28th Regiment of the U.S. Colored Troops. It's right by the interstate. As with most interstates, Building it meant bulldozing homes and breaking up a predominantly black neighborhood. Over here, we have the history marker for the uh, colored regiment. So this is Indiana's only black colored troops uh, that fought in the Civil War. And their camp was located right around here, not exactly here. Right uh, now, right Samson is developing a Fountain Square walking tour that will include Norwood, which is less than a mile away. But as much as Samson loves Indianapolis black history, even he didn't know anything about Norwood until Kayla looped him in. Without Kayla's information, I would have completely left out Norwood, like the city yeah. of Indianapolis has done time after time after time, just because people aren't talking about it. So like yeah. the importance of talking about neighborhoods, talking about history, that's how it gets remembered. And when you, know, when you go search Norwood 100 years later, right, what do you see and what do you find? And so now I think it's cool that Kayla's getting these historians together, building an archive, so that when a kid 50, 60, 70 years from now searches Norwood and lives in Norwood, they'll see their neighborhood and see like, wow, look at how strong we were. And we come from a long lineage of soldiers, you know? One of his favorite tours that he's given was for the Westfield Black Student Union. At Westfield High School, and they came on a walk and talk. And I was like, man, that's so cool that they got to do this in high school, because I would have loved to do this in high school, yeah. to highlight the, the history that we have in Indianapolis that looks like me, you know, looks yeah. like them. The teacher, I wouldn't say he was shocked, but he was kind of making jokes about like, 
how engaged some of the students were as opposed to maybe how they may be in school or whatever. <laughs> and, and, and they were having fun. They're taking pictures on the canal, you know, you're on the canal. So I was like, man, they're having a good time. And it looks like they're excited to see themselves in Indianapolis. I don't know how to explain the impact of wanting to accomplish something great and never seeing anyone that looks like you who could have ever done it. That's really harmful. And I don't really want another generation to have to grow up without knowing how much potential they have. The city dismissing Norwood's history isn't just a disservice to its full story. It reveals which facts the people in charge of cultivating our historical memories find important. It helps racist officials make the argument that there's nothing of value in a place like Norwood, that it can delay providing basic services like running water and electricity. It guides officials' choices about which neighborhoods to break up with interstate construction and which ones to leave intact. And that, in turn, affects how people see the worth of themselves and their communities. Kayla said one of the most rewarding parts of the work has been seeing people get excited about themselves and rediscover some of their own self-worth. One of the clearest moments in her memory was at Miss Flynn's house, when Miss Flynn met Kayla's father. And she goes, you know what? Your daughter keeps telling me that this is a free town. And you know what? She's right. I've always been free here. You know, and it was just like, damn, it's working, right? Like, she hated me when I walked in the door the first time I met her, right? And and she feels proud of herself today. You know, like, I make that little black lady cry for good reasons at least once a week. You know, it's like a great feeling, you know, because I'm sure she's cried a lot for bad reasons. Outside of Norwood, its story was of urban blight. Or it didn't exist at all. The real story of Norwood is one of profound freedom and community resiliency, but also of disenfranchisement and racism at the hands of the surrounding white communities. They're getting to know how important it is that they're still there. Your great-grandparents fought, fought hard. They survived slavery and a war to come here and build a home for you. And you're still here. You better fight for it. They fought for you. Kayla said today, Ms. Flynn's archive is in the final stages of being designated as a part of the National Park Service's African-American Civil Rights Network. They're hoping to have a marker for her grandfather's church by the end of the year. It matters that Norwood is still here, still inhabited by the direct descendants of emancipated people. Burying history buries that fact. Unearthing it allows us to remember where we come from, good and bad, and to build a better future. Katie Ratty produced those stories as an intern at Interstates. She is now an NPR News Apps and News Hub intern. All right, time for a break. When we come back, we have a drawing lesson from a young person. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Comic artist Linda Berry says when we're kids, we just draw. We don't need a reason. But most of us lose that capacity as adults. Why is that? Producer Kate Young decided to consult an expert. I know someone who makes comics. Beatrice Zora Nikki. She goes by B. I am eight years old. I'm in third grade. I heard about her work from her mom, who's a dear friend of mine. I was honestly blown away by her technique and her storytelling. I make comics too sometimes, but I came to it rather late in life and it doesn't come easy. And often my drawings get a bit overworked. I don't always know where to stop with the details. Bee's stories have that quality of aliveness that comic book author and professor Linda Berry talks about. And it seems like she knows some of the tricks that comic artists employ, like how to depict motion and mood with an economy of line. If it sounds like I'm getting too highbrow in my discussion of an eight-year-old's drawings, that's because you haven't seen Bee's work. I invited Bee to sit down with me for an interview and to show me some of her comics. 
I started by asking why she likes to make comics. You can draw. You can make whatever you want. You can draw an eyeball if you want, or something. Even something as like plain as a table or something. I just like drawing different things. I asked if she has a story in mind before she starts. No, I just make something up in my mind and then write it down and draw it on a piece of paper and then like staple it together and make it into a book. And、um, sometimes my books don't really have writing in them. It's like a picture book or something. Picture books are best read aloud. This one is called Good Luck and Bad Luck. Good luck going to the ice cream store, getting ice cream. Bad luck falling down the stairs. Good luck getting a present. Bad luck getting an F in class. The end. I reminded B that our conversation was for radio, and I asked if she could describe the pictures. Well, the going to the ice cream store thing looks like there's like an ice cream truck, and then like a person is getting an ice cream thing in the background, and then you are just like licking your ice cream thing that you got, and the falling down the stairs thing is basically just like you. Bouncing down stairs, it's, yeah,、uh-huh. and, and then coming out from the person is the word eek. <laughs> yeah, and getting an F in class is um like a person sitting at a thing, at um a desk, and um like looking at a sheet of paper and seeing that they got an F and the teacher's mad at them because they didn't do. A very good job. How can you tell in that picture that the teacher's mad? Because it has like um, uh, he's like not very. He has like a. What would you call that? I don't know, a cloud or a tornado or something, or something over their head. Yeah. And then she's kind of got her hands on her、mm-hmm. head. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe eyebrows are down a little yeah. too. Yeah.、Like, uh. And then the. Kid is surprised because he tried his best and apparently he got deaf. She has a series of books where a word or an object is depicted in many different iterations. For instance, the book of No, where the word No is expressed in several ways, or the headphones book showing headphones in various contexts. Sometimes I just like write a letter and then just try to think what I could do with it. Like I write like a two or a D or something, and like try to find how I could like make a thing out of it, like a human or something. I asked B if she is ever the subject of her own books. I have one where I make a book called The Book. Uh huh. And it's basically about me getting the book that I actually made getting published and ending up in the library. Like I send it to a publisher, and then the publisher gives it to a librarian, and then it ends up in a library, and my dad ends up checking it out. <laughs> you can see B has a postmodern sensibility. Bee started making her books when she was doing school online in 2020. They were writing assignments. But I liked it, even、uh-huh. though it was part of school. I know that Bee reads a lot of comics herself. I noticed some Calvin and Hobbes collections in the room where we were talking. She sees her work as comics too. Yeah, well, they don't have, they don't have like tiny little like panels or anything, but. They're just like full-page pictures. Yeah, but they do have like the speech bubbles. Yeah. And some of the things like that little cloud over the teacher's head, which yeah, does, does like, seem like comic things where they're trying to tell you an emotion with a little symbol or something. Yeah. So how do how do you feel when you draw? Does it make you feel a certain way? Happy. Yeah. Yeah, mostly. Do you ever draw if you're like upset or something? Well, sometimes I scribble on a piece of paper when I'm mad. <laughs> yeah. B says she wrote a story called "The Mad Penny" one day when she was upset, though she couldn't remember what she was mad about. To make art, 
you've got to have materials. B doesn't need anything fancy. Usually I use like crayons or like a pencil. With any creative endeavor, it can take a few tries before you land on a process that works for you. My first book that I made, I basically did it this way. I draw the pictures, write it down, and then I stapled it. But I thought it was in the right order, but apparently it wasn't. Oh no. Revision time. We have these, like, stapler things that can take out staples. We have them in my room, and my dad had to help me with that. So, yeah. I had to put them in the right order. And from then on, I... I basically stapled it all together and then drew it. Lesson learned. I wonder how it's changed her storytelling to have the number of pages already decided before she starts. Sometimes the best art comes from constraints. Now, what about audience? Who reads your books? Mostly my mom or my dad, whoever's home and not at work. And to expand Bee's audience, here are a couple of her stories for you to listen to. How about this one? A horror story about a carrot. Oh, no. And there's a a carrot that is saying, oh, no. I don't want to be in this horror story. (laughs) (laughs) It's just thinking that, though? Yeah. Ice cream. One day, he says an ice cream story. He's like, yum. Yum, indeed. And then... He gets really full, he's like, and then he sees something, and then he just runs. Well, if you can see, there's kind of like a shadow over him. And then there's like a shadow grows and grows, and there's like a gigantic hand, he's running. And then he gets pulled back, but you don't see what pulled him back. And then one second later, he's in a vegetable heaven, and there's a potato saying that's one of his friends. The potato is saying, I had the feeling you'd be here soon. And smiley face, smiley face. (laughs) You see the hand in one frame reaching for him. He's running. And then he's he's just sweating. He's like. (laughs) Okay, so you're showing the movement in a lot of ways here. It's through the arms and legs. Also through the lines. Yeah. Also the hair blowing back, the, like, which is really his stems. It's like the wind and his eyes. He's like, yeah, hope it doesn't grab me, don't grab me. And then it grabs him. What I like, too, is that you don't really see the horror, which is the carrot getting eaten. Yeah. You just see one second later. It's like, one second later, he's in vegetable heaven, up in a cloud. (laughs) And one more story. This one is Bee's version of the 1985 children's book, Emma Jean's Antlers, by David Small. Bee's Antlers, by Bee. One day, Bee woke up with antlers. Getting dressed was frustrating because she, there's like an erased picture of a lamp. The lamp from her dresser is actually like on her antlers. And so is the erased lamp sort of part of it? Like to sort of show that where it was? Yeah. Okay. Bee came downstairs and Bee's mom fainted. She's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bee tried to ignore the antlers. But it was no use because she was, like, pulling Rudy Babes on her phone. And then she accidentally took a picture of herself, and she looked at a picture of antlers. And in this picture, I forgot to take a picture of the antlers. You mean you forgot to draw the antlers? Yeah. The next day, the antlers were gone. Bee's mom was happy. Look! Until the next day, she had a lion tail. (laughs) <laughs> the end. There's a picture, picture of a person with a microphone saying, the end. And then they're saying, I said, the end. You can go now. <laughs> okay, bye. B says she's not making storybooks for school anymore, but she is still drawing. As for what she's drawing, well, that depends. I get into something and I'm like, no, I don't like that thing anymore. I go into a new thing and I'm like, I'm going to draw this. 
Like, for instance, I like pigs, and then I like cats, and stuff like that. Yeah. And right now you're in the dark cats. Yeah. You can see some of Bee's comics for yourself on our website, wfiu.org. Well, thanks again. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Beatrice Nicky. She's a third grader at Templeton Elementary in Bloomington, Indiana. For WFIU Arts, I'm Kate Young. Since that story first aired, Beatrice Nicky has moved on to fourth grade. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Sam G, Luann Johnson, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Memory Keepers, a project of Southeast Neighborhood Development in Indianapolis. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Airport People. All right, time for some found sound. You've been listening to the sound of an eight-year-old turning the pages of her hand-drawn and stapled comic books. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.